Hi, this is Brent White, and welcome back to my podcast. I preached the following message on July 19th, 2020 at Tekoa First United Methodist Church. The sermon is called, Don't Fall Away from Grace, and the scripture is Galatians 5, verses 1 through 12. I hope you enjoy it. We've just read Paul's most impassioned angriest words in all of the New Testament. Verse 12, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is heavy sarcasm in case you missed it. It's as if he were saying, hey Judaizers, if you're going to pervert the gospel by insisting that Gentile Christians get circumcised in order to be saved, why stop at circumcision? Why not go all the way and castrate yourselves while you're at it? Not my words, Paul's words right here in verse 12. Paul is righteously angry. Why? Because for Paul, the issue confronting the Galatians is nothing less than a salvation issue. Because for Paul, nothing other than heaven or hell hangs in the balance of the Galatians' choice to go back into slavery under the law or to live as free children of God. Because for Paul, if the Galatians buy into this theology that the false teachers are, are selling, if they start trusting in something or someone other than or in addition to Christ alone to save them through faith alone, they will not be saved at all. I mean, look at his words in verses 3 and 4. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Have you ever heard anybody, like a preacher or some other Christian, talk about falling away from grace, or, or more commonly, falling from grace? I, I have. But when they talk about falling away from grace, I don't think that this is normally what they have in mind. Listen, if you know your Methodist doctrine, you may know that we Wesleyan Christians believe in the doctrine of backsliding. That is, we believe that it's possible, it's possible for Christians who were at one time justified or in a right relationship with God to backslide. That is, to fall away from grace and even lose their salvation. That certainly sounds like what Paul is warning against in this scripture, doesn't it? Many Christians, of course, disagree with this Wesleyan doctrine of backsliding. Baptists, for instance, believe in once saved, always saved, eternal security of the believer. Um, Reformed Christians, like Presbyterians, talk about the 
perseverance of the saints, which is the same idea. If you at one time genuinely receive Christ as Savior and Lord, you can be confident, no matter what, that you will be saved. In my opinion, this is strictly a secondary issue over which there's no need for us Christians to divide. Here's why. See, whether you believe, like Methodists, that it's possible to be saved at one time and lose your salvation, or you believe that you, you can begin to live your life like a Christian and you can make a profession of faith, but, but that you're never actually saved, and later on you abandon that faith, the end result will be the same Unless you repent and believe in Jesus, you will be eternally separated from God. So whether you accept one doctrine or the other, the end result is the same. It doesn't really matter how you got there. At least that's my opinion. Regardless, when we talk about backsliding or falling away from grace, what Paul says in today's scripture isn't normally what we have in mind. Because we think, we think that this Falling away normally happens when Christians manage to sin away their salvation. They sin and sin and sin some more until finally they find themselves on the outside looking in to God's kingdom. And that simply isn't the kind of backsliding that Paul worries about very much. I mean, if you don't believe me, Consider the Corinthian Christians. And now, if you were in my First Corinthians Bible study before the pandemic hit and, and uh, the world turned upside down, you'll recall that Paul was writing to a badly dysfunctional and sin-filled church. A church that was sinning in spectacular ways, in a wide variety of ways, both large sins and small sins, at least according to the way we, uh, we usually understand sin. But the Corinthians were doing it all. <laughs> and Paul in spite of the fact that the Corinthians were sinning in these spectacular ways, Paul never gets nearly as passionate or angry about the Corinthians' sinful behavior as he does about the Galatians and what they're dealing with in today's scripture. In 1 Corinthians 5, for instance, Paul is talking about a man in the church who's committing a grievous sin. I can't even mention it in church without moving uh, from a family-friendly sermon to a PG-13 sermon. But you can look it up on your own. My point is, even that man, Paul says, hasn't yet passed a point of no return. Paul says that he has not currently fallen away from grace. Not that he isn't in danger of falling away, but at that moment, even he is still saved. Then, in the next chapter in 1 Corinthians 6, get this, Paul is talking to Christian men in the congregation, and they were likely married men 
who were sleeping with prostitutes. And this seems so obviously wrong to us, but Paul is having to explain to them and warn them about why Christians are not permitted to do that sort of thing. But even in that case, he is writing to them as fellow Christians, not as men who have fallen away from grace. Elsewhere, in that letter, he warns Christians in the church that they're not permitted to go into a pagan temple filled with idols and participate in any way in, in pagan festivals or, or worship services. Even though, you know, from their perspective, idols are no big deal, Paul says no. And again, the Christians who are doing this are, a, are still a part of the body of Christ. They haven't fallen away from grace. Not to mention all the Corinthians in Corinth who, Paul says, are committing so-called smaller sins, respectable kinds of sins, you know, related to, to pride and hypocrisy. These Christians, likewise, haven't fallen away from grace. Indeed, at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, when Paul addresses these sinful Christians in this sin-filled church, in verse 2, Paul writes, to the church of God, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Literally, that means that these Christians to whom Paul is writing, including the ones I just mentioned, are somehow already saints. That's what it means. They are saints because of what Christ accomplished for them through the shedding of his precious blood on the cross and through their faith in what Christ accomplished. Yes, they are engaging in seriously sinful behavior. And yes, they ought to repent. And yes, the Holy Spirit is, is still working to change them from within so that they will stop sinning. But in spite of all that, in spite of their sin, because of their faith in Christ, Paul says, they are still accepted by God. They are still loved by God. They are still beloved sons and daughters of God. They still enjoy God's blessings and favor. God hasn't given up on them. God hasn't turned his back on them. God isn't going to condemn them because nothing they can do, not even their seriously sinful behavior, can in and of itself separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. What does Paul say in verse 6? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. It's as if Paul were saying, none of you were saved because of all the good works that you did in the past or that you promised to do in the future. Your salvation had nothing to do with you and what you can do. Therefore, it follows logically that you won't be unsaved because of your failure to do 
good works. You won't be unsaved because of anything that you do, including your sin. It's only by faith in Christ that we are saved. Faith alone. This is the radical message of the completely free grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's almost offensive. No, it it is offensive, Paul says. Verse 11, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. What does preaching circumcision have to do with the offense of the cross? Because the cross reminds us that we can do nothing at all to deserve God's amazing free gift of eternal life. We can't earn it. We can't merit it in any way. We can never be good enough. God has to do everything to save us. I mean, give the Judaizers credit. They were preaching a respectable kind of religion. The kind that makes sense to the world. God has done his part. Now you have to do your part. It's a two-way street. Of course you need to perform these good works. Consider what God has done for you. You've got to pay God back at least a little bit for his gift of eternal life, right? I mean, that only makes sense. By the way, This is exactly what the prodigal son thought. Remember that great parable from Luke chapter 15? After the younger son completely squandered his father's inheritance, he thinks, I'm no longer worthy to be called a son of my father. So here's what I'll do. I'll say to my father, Make me like one of your hired servants. Just, I'll just work as your slave. At least I'll get three square meals a day. And the father, of course, won't hear of it. Kill the fattened calf, he says. Throw the biggest party imaginable. My son has returned. My son who was lost has been found. My son who was dead is now alive. And we're going to throw the biggest party the world has ever seen. Of course I'm going to treat him like he's my son. I don't care what happened in the past. But we don't often pay close attention to the other character in the parable, the older son, who is so upset at his father's completely free gift of grace toward his no-good little brother that he refuses to come inside the house and party with everyone else. And when the father goes out to try to talk some sense into him, what does the so-called good son the long-suffering older brother, say to his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And the father tells his older son in so many words, Your place is, in this family, as my beloved child, has never depended 
on you serving me. I never ask you to serve me in order to be my son, in order to win my favor, in order to win my love. My love does not depend on what you do for me. It's like this. My family and I went on vacation last week, as many of you know. We went to the beach um, in St. Simon's. Um, Now, this is completely uh, imaginary, but imagine, suppose that Lisa and I kept a chart on the wall um, measuring the behavior of our three kids, uh, keeping track of, of what they do. And we have on this chart all the different chores each day um, that they could perform. And, and this chart goes back, you know, week by week, month by month. It goes back a long way. And, uh, and so we keep track of how often each child did the dishes or took out the trash or scooped the litter box or did the grocery shopping or washed the cars or gave the dogs a bath or, or made good grades in, in school. So that, before, so that before we left on vacation last week, we tallied up how often and how successfully my kids did these things. And so we thought, did, our, did my child, did my son, did my daughter do enough to earn the privilege of going with the white family to the beach? Well, no, they did not do enough, we might think. Therefore, they're going to have to stay at home. What kind of loving parents would ever subject their children to that kind of scrutiny and testing before letting them join them at the beach on vacation? It's preposterous. It's unthinkable. Simply by virtue of being a member of the family, a child is entitled to do all these good things that come with family membership. I'm not talking about, of course, children need to get disciplined and all that. But I, the strictest parent has never prohibited his child from going on vacation because they didn't, you know, perform uh, the duties that they were supposed to perform. As far as I know. But, there, but, but, but there's simply no danger that any of my three kids could disqualify themselves from going on vacation with us based on what they did or didn't do for me and Lisa. And I am myself a sinful human father, and even I would never consider doing that. How much more true is that for our perfectly loving Heavenly Father? I have counseled people over the years who have come to me as their pastor just filled with guilt, in tears, because of some sin or failure or addiction in their lives. And they've said to me, how could I do this? There's no way God could still love me because I failed in this spectacular way. I sinned in this spectacular way. I've hurt these people so badly. I knew better and I did it anyway. I had repented of these sins in the past. 
I ask forgiveness in the past, yet here I go, failing again, blowing it again. How could my heavenly Father still love me? How could he still forgive me? How could he still save me? How could he still call me his child? I've heard these sorts of confessions over the years. I've met many Christians who are just racked with guilt. And if I could put into words the unspoken theology, the unspoken beliefs that, that are underneath the words of these guilty Christians, it might sound something like this. Jesus saved me from all my sins in the past. I couldn't do that myself, but, but I received his forgiveness, and I'm grateful for that. Thank you, Jesus. And I had my act together for, for a little while at least. I was doing my part. I was showing God that he didn't waste his grace on me. I was earning it. And I was proving to God that I deserved his gift of salvation after I became a Christian. I was doing so good. I was working so hard, but I blew it. I failed. I let others down. I'm obviously not a good Christian, and God cannot possibly love me very much, if at all. Maybe I'm not even saved. Does this sound familiar? Because I guarantee that some of you who are listening to my voice right now are living your Christian life believing this about yourself and about your Heavenly Father. I don't blame you for believing this way. That's just respectable religion, after all. But I am urging you to repent because God's Word says you're in danger. And the danger, Paul says, is not, what, is not that what you've done will cause you to fall away from grace. The danger is your lack of faith in what Jesus has done for you on the cross to forgive you, to save you, to make you a child of God. That's what risks causing you to fall away from grace, according to Paul in today's scripture. I know many of you have seen and loved um, that Steven Spielberg movie, um, Saving Private Ryan. If so, you'll remember the dying words that Captain Miller, Tom Hanks's character, speaks to Private Ryan, played by Matt Damon. After nearly everyone in Miller's unit dies, <laughs> trying to save Ryan's life. Miller grabs Ryan by the collar and he says, earn this, earn it. <laughs> and next, we see an elderly Ryan, decades later, near the end of his own life, standing beside the grave markers on Normandy Beach, asking his children and his grandchildren, did I earn it? In other words, did I live a life 
worthy of the sacrifices that Captain Miller and his fellow soldiers made for me so long ago? Did I deserve the life that their deaths made possible for me? And of course, his family just reassures him, oh, dad, of course you did. Don't, don't give it a second thought. And I'm thinking, really? Who are they kidding? A dozen men sacrificed their lives to save his life. How could he possibly earn that? What a cruel thing for Captain Miller to tell Ryan with his dying breath. What an impossible, crushing burden to have to live up to. What guilt to have to live with for the rest of your life. By contrast, when Jesus, the world's one and only true Savior, willingly sacrificed his life on the cross in order to save ours, he did not say, earn this, as if any one of us could earn God coming in the flesh and suffering death and hell in our place for us. No, our Savior didn't say, earn this, Earn this forgiveness. Earn this salvation. Earn this eternal life. Earn this eternity in heaven. Instead, he said, receive this. Receive this gift and enjoy it. Enjoy it. Don't you dare feel guilty. It's yours for free. I'm giving it to you out of love. I wanted to do this for you because I loved you that much. Enjoy this gift. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in the Tacoa, Georgia area, I hope that you will come and worship with us at Tacoa First. We have live in-person worship every week, and we also have online worship. Please see tacoafirstumc.org for more information.